we've come to the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis. You have your Bible there. Follow along with us. And in many respects, this chapter is one of the more remarkable chapters of the Bible. It certainly is a dramatic chapter. It's the deathbed scene of old Jacob. In fact, we saw him on that deathbed last time. You'll recall that when he saw his son Joseph coming in, that he strengthened himself and he sat upon the bed. He just rejoiced to see his own son. Then after their interview, the rest of the sons came in, and he has around him now all twelve of his sons. And this is his farewell message. Now, a farewell message is very important. And he begins with his eldest son and just goes right down the list. And you couldn't have anything really more important than this. It is dramatic. Anything that a man says on his deathbed is important because you feel like at that time he's telling the truth. How many times have you heard of a deathbed confession? Man waits until he gets really on his deathbed. I was reading some time ago of a man up in his 80s. He was taken into a mission, almost delirious. He was dying, and he made a confession of a murder that had been committed over 50 years ago in Mississippi. Another man had been hanged for that murder. They thought he was just delirious. They began the investigation. They found out he is guilty, that he was the one who was guilty. man generally will tell the truth when he gets on his deathbed. That is, if he hasn't told it before. Now we see Jacob on his deathbed. And let me begin reading here at verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Now, we come to an important expression. There have been some folk that think I use certain expressions too much. And by the way, I agree with them. But you're going to find out there are certain expressions in the Bible that occur and reoccur again and again and again. Now, one is right here, in the last days. Now, the last days of the nation Israel will be different than the last days of the church. And here again, where you have a sharp dispensational distinction that needs to be made. The last days now of Israel. That's what he's talking about. What's going to happen to his sons in the last days. I was in seminary with a young man he was a Lutheran boy, a very brilliant young fellow. In fact, the matter is, he became a theology professor and a Hebrew professor, and either one of them requires quite a few brains. And this young man certainly had the. I always enjoyed talking with him because he always had something new to offer because he did a great deal of study. He told me one day that he was writing on the prophecies concerning the twelve sons of Jacob. And we'll see a little later on, we get to the book of Deuteronomy. They have become tribes then, each tribe with thousands in them. And in those tribes, Moses has something to say. And he took those prophecies, one in this chapter and the one that Moses gave, and followed the tribes through. Now, a great many people today talk about 
the fact that there are certain prophecies concerning the nation Israel. Many of them have been fulfilled. Some are yet to be fulfilled. Now, that's all true, but you can narrow it down even less than that. You can divide Israel into 12 parts. And God has had something to say concerning each one of these tribes of Israel. And not only has the prophecy concerning the nation been fulfilled, but the prophecy concerning each tribe has been fulfilled. And friends, that makes it remarkable indeed. So this is what's going to befall them in the last days. Now, some of the prophecy has been fulfilled, but most of it waits to be fulfilled. Actually, more of what Moses had to say to the tribes has been fulfilled than what we have here. But it's quite remarkable, and all of it looks to the last days. Now, I read verse 2 of Genesis 49. "'Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father.'" Now, you must grant that this is quite a dramatic scene we have before us. Here's the old man, and he's sitting up in bed. I've seen pictures of him stretched out in bed and looked like he wouldn't be able to raise his head. But that's not true. He was leaning on his staff. The last verse tells that, that he was leaning on his staff. Old Jacob, frankly, friends, he'd been on the go all of his life, and he wanted to keep going. Death is really an embarrassment. It comes at a most inconvenient time when we want to keep going down here. And if you've made an appointment, you have to break that appointment. How unusual this is. I make all my appointments today on the condition that I'm alive. I've got appointments made two years ahead. I don't know whether I'll fulfill them or not. And I always say, provided I'm alive. Well, Jacob found that he couldn't keep going. He was leaning on his staff. He wanted to keep going, but he couldn't keep going. What a remarkable man he was in many ways. We'll see that when we come to it. Now, notice what he has to say. He begins with Reuben, verse 3. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. The thing that he recognized, and all of these patriarchs recognized, is the great subject of heredity that has been made so much of today. Like father, like son, it's transferred on to the son. And Jacob is recognizing that. And he recognized in this boy a great deal that was like himself, unstable as water. That had been this man at the beginning, you see, even Jacob. But it was true of his oldest son. Thou shalt not excel. He never did win a blue ribbon. He won a couple red ribbons and some white ribbons. He never was in first place. Thou shalt not excel. A lot of folk like that today, and they're satisfied with it. I have a preacher friend. He's a wonderful man, but he could have gone so much farther than he did go. But he didn't want to go. He had no desire than to just do and be what he wanted to do. He could have been a wonderful writer. He didn't want to be. <laughs> I think he wrote two little pamphlets, and he could have been a great Bible teacher. He didn't want to be. He was satisfied with winning a red ribbon. That's second place. And he never won a blue ribbon. Thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. 
Now, that is Reuben, and his was a sordid story, you remember. I didn't dwell on it. Those of you that have been with us through Genesis, I didn't dwell on it at all. But it was there, and I'm sure many of you read it. It was a sordid story. I see no reason to dwell on that today. Contemporary literature and plays and movies and television, well, they're making you sick of it. And I noticed that even a great many liberals today who just decried censorship and everybody ought to be able to do his thing and speak what he wanted to speak and freedom of speech. I noticed quite a few of them are writing now and saying they're tired of the dirt and filth that's coming out today. Well, may I say there's no reason to dwell on it. And certainly a Christian's told if there is anything pure, then think on those things. Now notice the next two boys are put together. Simeon and Levi are brethren. They were full brothers. They were the sons, you'll recall, of Leah. Instruments of a cruelty are in their habitation. You remember how they went in among their neighbors? And, of course, their own sister had been raped, and they didn't appreciate that. And they killed all the entire habitation. Only one man is guilty, but they took it out on the whole town. They shouldn't have done that. And believe me, Jacob reminds us, Simeon and Levi, brethren, verse 6, O my soul, come not thou into their secret, under their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, Simeon was the southernmost tribe. You would think that it would be identified with Judah and Benjamin, but it's not. You never hear of them. They had territory, but they seemed to have just sort of faded away in the other tribes. And Levi, and here you see the marvelous grace of God. And I want to tell you, friends, this is the marvelous grace of God that you see exhibited in Levi. It was the grace of God that could take a cruel person like Levi and make him head of the priestly tribe. It's the grace of God that has made us sinners into a kingdom of priests also, friends. All believers are priests today. And how did you become that? Well, among those, there have been converted drunkards, converted harlots, converted murderers. I've had all of them in my churches that I've served. May I say to you, it's the marvelous grace of God. He says, "...for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot." And then he goes on in First Peter, and that's First Peter 1, 18 and 19, but in the second chapter, verse 5, he says, "...ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ." Well, who is he talking about? Those that have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Now, will you notice, that's these two boys. And by the way, Reuben lost first place. 
Simeon and Levi really lost first place. The king will not come from them. But there's another boy, and he was a sinner. But notice what the grace of God did for him. Verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. This is the one, not now before Joseph's line, but from now on it'll be Judah. Because who came out of the tribe of Judah? Well, the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Now, here's one of the most remarkable prophecies in Scripture. Verse 10, I'm reading it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. That's the ruler. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, frankly, this is one of the more remarkable prophecies that's in the Word of God. Already we have been told that it'll be the seed of the woman. Back in Genesis 3.15, where God says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, thy seed, her seed. And the seed of the woman is the one to do the bruising of the serpent's head. He'll be the one to get the victor. That's the first prophecy. Then that seed was confirmed to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now it's confirmed to Judah that out of Judah's line he's coming. Not only that, but he's called Shiloh. That means rest, tranquility. He's the one that will bring rest. And the people who heard him in that day, when they rejected him, you remember he turned to the populace, to the multitudes, and he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you at Shiloh. Shiloh had come, not only the seed, not only Shiloh, but the scepter. He's the one that'll hold the scepter. And friends, the scepter of this universe is in nail-pierced hands today. Not only that, but we are told a little later on in verse 24, it says, from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. He's called a shepherd. He's also called in that same passage a stone. And over Numbers, the 24th chapter of the prophecy of Balaam, 17, a star. So with the coming of Christ, he is the seed. He's Shiloh, who brings rest. He's the one that holds the scepter. He is the shepherd that gave his life, and he's the chief shepherd who's coming someday. He is the stone that the builders disallowed, but has now become the headstone of the corner. And he's the star, the bright and morning star for his church today. This is the line from Adam. And Abel was murdered, and God raised up another seed, Seth. Seth to Noah, and Noah through Shem, and Shem to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. May I say to you, you can be blind and still see that God is moving according to a pattern and according to a program here. This is very important to see, and don't miss it. Now, I've been dealing with this prophecy, which I consider all important here, and we'll just have to hit some high points from here on. Now we come at verse 11 here, 
It still has to do with Judah. It says here, "...binding his foal unto the vine, his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk." What are we talking about here? Here's the one that came riding into Jerusalem, riding a little donkey, offering himself as the Messiah, the King, the Savior, and he washed his garments in wine. What kind of wine? That blood, his own blood. But he's coming next time, and Isaiah said he has dyed garments, and it's not his own blood this time, but the blood of his enemies, and his eyes shall be red with wine. That's when he comes a second time. My friends, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies we have in Scripture, and there are a great many remarkable prophecies. Now we have here in Zebulun, verse 13, he's another one of the boys. And I don't care to dwell with these too much other than their remarkable prophecies. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Sidon. And he was the northernmost tribe on the coast. Actually, Dan went farther north up to Mount Hermon, but along the coast, Zebulun went up farther north. Then we have Issachar next, verse 14. Issachar is a strong ass, couching down between two burdens, and he saw that rest was good in the land, that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant under tribute. Now, this tribe and these tribes in this area to the north, and that's where they were finally located, by the way, they were the ones that did a great deal of the work that constituted the backbone of the nation. That is the whole thought and intent here. They were the workers. We've heard a great deal about the silent majority today, and actually... The average person, one like you and I are today, we don't get on television, and I don't think we want on it. Who do they put on TV? They feature the weirdos, the so-called great, the peculiar crowd, the unusual. That's the ones today. But the crowd that they try to make you believe are the important ones today. They're not the backbone of this nation or any nation. The ones that are the backbone of this country. And actually, these tribes that you and I pass over here, they were really the backbone of the nation Israel when they got in the land. Now we have six more to go, and we'll be much briefer with these because we feel like the one that was really now all important is Judah. And why? Well, it's because we know now that the Lord Jesus is coming through Judah. You see, all we knew at the beginning was that it would be the seed of the woman. Then we saw that it went down through Seth and then to Noah, and it moved on down then to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jacob had 12 sons. Which one will it be? Well, we know it's not going to be Reuben. Looks like Joseph, does it not? But not Joseph, it's Judah. And God, by His marvelous grace, picked him, and out of that tribe there will come the Messiah, there will come the Deliverer, there will come the Savior of the world.
Now, in verse 16, we take up the tribe of Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth a horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Now, Dan is going to need the salvation of the Lord because Dan was one of the tribes, you will recall, that actually led in rebellion. We'll see that when we get to it. Now, verse 19, Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Now, actually, these are tribes, if you'll notice the location of them. The prophecies given to the sons, and these sons were the founders of the tribes that actually were in the north. You find that Dan was really the one farthest north. We use the expression, Dan to Beersheba. And we find that along the coast, we have seen Zebulun and Issachar. And now we move on down. It says, verse 19, "...Gad a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last." And we are now beginning to move down just a little. "...Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties." Now, I can't go into detail, but as I mentioned last time, this young man who was a Lutheran, he wrote a thesis, and I understand it was published. I couldn't tell you much about it now. I know that I had a copy of the thesis and have it somewhere today. I can't put my finger on it, but it was quite remarkable how he took each one of these boys and showed how these prophecies were fulfilled in the life of each one of the tribes. You see that different ones, in fact, every one that we'll deal with, personally, from now on, comes out of one of the tribes of Israel. In fact, we follow, of course, David and his line, and we know he came out of the tribe of Judah. We saw that last time, that the kingly line would come from Judah. Now we come to Joseph. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Now, Joseph, you see, had left the land, gone down into Egypt, but he still was a witness for God there. And you'll find that Ephraim and Manasseh were put in the land where actually the Samaritans were later on. It was called Gentile territory in Christ's day. Great place for witness. The gospel went into that area. My, you could follow each one of these through in such a very remarkable way. And then we have here, verse 23, "...the archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." The shepherd and the stone, you see. Verse 25, "...even by the God of thy father..." who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Actually, 
the two tribes that came from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, became very prominent, important tribes. But out of these tribes also there came the division of the kingdom. They were just that potent, by the way. Now we have here verse 26, "...the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of thy progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills." They shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. The thing Jacob does is to try to tie Joseph and the two tribes that are going to come from him back to the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the Creator, the Redeemer. And why? Well, it's these two tribes, especially Ephraim, that led into idolatry and caused the division of the kingdom. Where we have Jeroboam out of the tribe of Ephraim leading. And it was up in these two tribes that the two calves were placed for worship. So that he did well, you see, to call them back to the God of his fathers. Now he gives then, having given Joseph, Joseph is next to the youngest, we have Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf in the morning. And he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. This is a strange prophecy concerning Benjamin. But again, why, you will find that Benjamin was closely identified with Judah, so much so that Benjamin went with the tribe of Judah, the division of the kingdom. They are the only tribe that stayed with the house of David. This is a remarkable prophecy that has other fulfillments. We're not going into detail on all these. It just make a remarkable study to just spend time on following these twelve sons into the twelve tribes and the history of the twelve tribes. We read verse 29, and this is Jacob now. And he charged them, that is his sons, and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. You see, death to him was not an end of it all. He was going to be with his people. Bury me, that is, his body. Bury me with my fathers in the cave, that is, in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Now, this is the cave that Abraham bought. And he wanted to be buried there because that one was bought and paid for. And he wanted to make sure he stayed in that land until the day that he'd be raised from the dead to live in that land. He goes on now in verse 30, depicting all of this, "...in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, for a possession of a burying place." Now, you see how much this man knew of his own history it's quite remarkable. I don't think he carried with him a written record at this time. He says, There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. Now, it's not that he's interested in being buried with Leah. After all, Rachel is buried up at Bethlehem. But he wants to be where he'll be raised from the dead at the resurrection when God fulfills his promises to this nation. And you see, it's going to beat each one of these tribes, too. 
And now he goes on in verse 32. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, yielded up the ghost, and was gathered unto his people. And I think this is quite interesting. Up to the very last, Jacob kept his feet on the floor. He started out in life a man that was a man of the flesh. He took hold of his brother's heel at birth, and his name's Supplanter, and he lived up to that name. It is certainly characteristic of him. He'd seize everything that he could hold on to. He was always reaching out, trying to be first, and he started out by going on all fours. He took what he wanted by any method. Now, as a young man, he walked in his own strength and ability, depended on his own cleverness and ingenuity. He's able to take care of himself. He didn't need God. And he learned his lessons when he visited Uncle Laban. Self-sufficient, self-opinionated, self-assertive, aggressive, and contemptible and despicable. And then he comes after that experience to Peniel at the brook Jabbok. God crippled him. God had to break his leg to get him, and I think God was prepared to break his neck. And he went through life limping. In other words, he started out on four legs. He went on two legs. Now he's going to go on three legs. He's going to use a staff. He'll walk on a walking stick. And he could not any longer walk by himself. And now here at death, He's still sitting up in bed, and he's leaning on his staff. But now the time has come. He just pulls his feet up in bed, puts down the staff, and he lays down and dies. This is Jacob. He'd walked a long ways through life, and he'd come a long ways. Now, we have in chapter 50 actually the burial of Jacob. And it's a fitting chapter to end Genesis that began with the creation and then it ends almost dolefully. But sin has come in and brought death. And you have here the death and burial of Jacob, and you have the death and burial of Joseph. The burial of Jacob up in Canaan, burial of Joseph in Egypt. Now notice verse 1. And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. He sorrowed, naturally, loved his father. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, and the physicians embalmed Israel. As you know, the Egyptians were quite experts at this sort of thing. We hear the mummies in Egypt. Well, they had a method of burying that we haven't caught on to really today. Here was something that was quite remarkable that they knew. A great many people think that it was the nation Israel that developed this down in the land of Egypt. Well, I'm not prepared to discuss that, but at least Joseph called in the physicians and had them embalm his father. And you don't laugh at a funeral, but I can't help but smile when I think they made old Jacob into a mummy. That's what happened to him. And I'm of the opinion that mummies up there at Hebron today his request was, I want to be taken and buried up there. Why? His hope is an earthly hope, friends. 
Don't you see it? He wants to be buried up there in that land because someday he's to be raised from the dead. And when he is, why, he'll be there in the land with the nation Israel. Now, he has no promise of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and going to a place called the New Jerusalem out in space. Now, that's a promise given to the child of God today in the church. There are two different hopes, by the way, but they're both glorious, wonderful hopes. I'll be honest with you, I just soon have one as the other, but I'm confident that it's a superior hope to go and be with Christ. That is the hope today of the believer in the church. Now we are told, and forty days were fulfilled for him, for so are fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him threescore and ten days. And I'd call attention to two things there, the length of time that it took to embalm, forty days. Evidently, there were several processes to this, and that which we know nothing about today. Now, the Egyptians mourned for him, and I don't think this was professional mourning. I think he became a real saint in the land of Egypt and probably looked up to and respected as the father of Joseph. Joseph was the deliverer, but certainly this was his father, and he at this time was a real saint of God. Now, verse 4, And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die. In my grave which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there shalt thou bury me. Now, therefore, let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I'll come again. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father according as he made thee swear. And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. You see, this man was greatly respected and loved and honored in the land of Egypt. This is probably the longest funeral procession the world's ever seen. When I say long, I mean by that it was all the way from Egypt up to Canaan to Hebron, and that's a pretty long funeral procession. And all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. I don't know this, but I highly suspect that Pharaoh required this to make sure Joseph would come back. Pharaoh needed him. Verse 9, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, and there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians, wherefore the name of it was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond Jordan. And his sons did unto him according as he commanded them. For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for a possession of a burying place 
of Ephron the Hittite before Mamre. Now, maybe this will answer the question that I'm sure several will ask, and that will be, well, what about Jacob? Why wasn't he buried with his lovely Rachel in Bethlehem? It was nearby, probably 20 more miles farther north. Well, I think it's obvious now. Again and again, we've been told that this is the place Abraham bought, and Jacob wanted to be put in the place that was bought and paid for. Make sure he'd stay in that land. I think that's important to see. That's the reason he was buried here with the other patriarchs. This was their hope. And now, verse 14, "...and Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father." after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil, And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. You see, evidently, these brethren, before old Jacob died, they came to him and said to him, What'll happen to us when you die? And Joseph will turn on us and against us at that time. Well, he said, then here's my message that I want you to give to Joseph. And he'll not, I'm sure, persecute you our attempt to get even. Finally, the confession of these brethren bring from Joseph. You see here this matter just weeping because of it, because they are now repenting of it. And verse 18, And his brethren also wept and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. You see the prophecy that he'd had of the sun, moon, and stars falling down before him has certainly come true. Verse 19, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? And Joseph will give God the glory in every case. Notice, but as for you... Now, here's a remarkable verse of Scripture. Verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Friends, God has a far-off purpose that you and I do not see. And that respects your life and my life today. And I must confess how human I am about this, because I tell you, I can't see any farther in my nose when trouble comes to me. And my question is, why does God permit it to happen? Well, he's got a good purpose in view. And he's not going to let it happen to you unless it will accomplish a good purpose in your life. Listen to him. Now, therefore, he says, fear ye not. I'll nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived a hundred and ten years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. I take it that he was a great-great-grandfather. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. 
And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of the land, unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the way the book of Genesis ends. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning. But now, a coffin in Egypt. What happened? Well, sin entered the human family. But now, notice this specifically. The question arises, why wasn't Joseph taken up at this time and buried in the land? Well, I think, obviously, Joseph happens to be a hero in the land of Egypt. I do not think that they would have permitted his body to have been removed from that land at the time. I think he was one of the outstanding patriots that the Egyptians worshipped, probably, that at least they certainly treated with respect his grave, and probably a monument was reared to him. But now he said to his own people, when you go up, don't leave my bones down here. Now again, friends, May I say that he had a hope. It was an earthly hope that someday he was to be raised from the dead. Now, if he's to be raised from the dead and be caught up to meet the Lord in there, what difference does it make whether the launching pads in Egypt or Canaan or Florida or wherever you live? It wouldn't make a bit of difference. We are to be caught up to meet the Lord in there someday. Doesn't make any difference where we are buried, but for these people, it meant a great deal to be buried in that land. For that land is their hope. It's to be their eternal possession. And this brings us now to the conclusion of the book of Genesis.